Does everybody have an outline? Raise your hand and Jeff will make sure that you get one. Some over here, some down at the front. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we gratefully acknowledge that without Your presence in our life, we are adrift in an ocean of meaninglessness and insignificance and ignorance in this life. You are the one that makes sense. You are the one that makes sense of us and of this world that we live in. And for that we are thankful, Father. And that You make it sense to us through Your revealed Word and and the way that Your revealed Word tells us about the love and the compassion that You have for us and how You draw us unto Yourself and make Yourself known to us most perfectly through Christ Jesus. And we're thankful for this revelation, Father, that helps us to understand the kind of people that we have been called to be and the kind of of, of vision for all of life that we are to have in light of Your overarching presence in everything. Thank You for this. And we pray that as we, we think about this psalm tonight and how it relates to us and our hearts and our minds and the way that we are formed and and our relationship with You in Your presence, I I pray that it will deepen us as disciples and that we will understand the importance of worship and the making of our lives as disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. Thank You for it, Father, and for it we, we ask in the name of Jesus to have eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray it in Christ's name. And all the church said, question from this morning that we dealt with in in thinking about worship was, why does God command worship? Is He egotistical? Is there something that God is lacking? Does He have a human-shaped hole in His heart that needs to be filled up by us? That He is insufficient in Himself and that He needs something from us in order to be complete. And what we saw is that God does not need worship. We are the ones that need to to worship God. Uh, Another question, uh, in some some uh, ways maybe a little bit more difficult to answer is one that you hear from time to time from, from uh, again, p- people that, that uh, uh, are, are unbelievers when it comes to the presence of God and the, and the, the, the will of God. And the question, you know, it's, it's, it's stated a lot of different ways, but the way that it, it's stated most of the time is, you know, Christians believe such great things. They believe such great truths. They they believe in such a, a, a significant truth and value system about their lives. And that being true, why are so many still living such messed up lives and, and seem to be such rotten people? It's a fair question. And the answer is not simple. Uh, I think after 30 years of ministry, I can say without a shadow of a doubt that there are lots of people who when they come into a relationship with God, they are changed in profound ways. They are changed in enormous ways. They are completely different people after their conversion than the kind of individual, the kind of human being they were before conversion. But, the truth be told, there are great numbers of Christians who are not changed. Not in the least. Not in the way that they are responsible for their own life. 
the, 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 the way that they are to conduct themselves in their families and in their relationships and in, in business, they are not changed in the least. And there is a, a very practical and biblical answer, I think, to that. As we read through the, the text of the New Testament over and over again, the Bible says in the teachings of Jesus, in the t- writings of Paul, in the writings of, of Peter and all the rest of the New Testament, that this is the way that God calls you to live. This is the way that your character is to be formed. Uh, one of the great and most common examples of this is Galatians chapter 5. Paul is saying that there's a way to live that is according to the flesh, and this is the product of it. It's immorality and slander and libel and, and evil and all forms of malice and all of these different things that, that are the product of walking according to the flesh, that is, according to the natural man. But on the other hand, Paul says, if you understand that the Spirit of God is inside of you and you walk in agreement with that Spirit and you understand that God is drilling into your life, there are going to be changes and you're going to become more loving and faithful and kind and gentle. And Galatians 5 is just one example of that. But what is needed is a bridge that goes from what it is we believe, the facts that form the foundation of our faith, the the truth of what it is that we are called to live and to believe and to be in the kingdom of God to character being formed and transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And the reason for that is we're not just a brain. It takes more than just facts. It takes more than just just indicative statements of fact to, to make that change. We're not just a brain. We're other parts as well. And that belief has to be driven into all of those other parts, into the total being of our individual self. And the Bible teaches, among other things, that worship is an essential part of our becoming disciples of Jesus. I'll I'll give you an example of of how that works. Back in in 1997, we had just moved back to the States from Brazil. We had not been here very long. And uh, we had decided that most of the time when we take a vacation is to go see family or it was uh, to go see visiting churches while we were back on furlough. And now we had an opportunity just for the four of us, Ellen and Jessica and Jordan and myself, to go do something. And you, you know what we decided to do? Let's go to Mount Rushmore. We were living in the, the Midwest at that time, and we decided to go see Mount Rushmore. And it was something that I'd always wanted to see, and it was absolutely stunning. And one of the things that we did after leaving the park is we got onto the Needles Parkway. And one of the really cool things about that parkway is that it's just tunnels right through rock, right through the middle of these mountains. And when you're driving away from the faces, what you see in your rearview mirror in every one of these tunnels in that parkway you, see, you look in your rearview mirror and you see the faces. As you're driving towards the faces, every time you go into one of those tunnels, you see the faces of Mount Rushmore. Now, the, the more you think about those rocks being moved in those tunnels, the more impressed you are with the engineering. I mean, if you left it up to me, I don't know that much about engineering. I'm, I'm, I'm just a simple country preacher. <laughs> and I would, you know... With my limited knowledge, you know, I would probably say, you know, just put the dynamite there on top of the rock. And if you took that dynamite, that explosive charge, it's very, very powerful, and you just put it on that rock, it would blow up, and it would just shave off maybe a very superficial level of that rock. But if you were to drill deep, deep, deep down into that granite, and you were to fill the heart of that rock with that, that explosive material, 
just filled it to the brim with that explosive material, and then you detonated it, after it had gone all the way down into the inside of that rock, then you're going to be able to move a lot of granite, and you're going to change the face of a mountain. Now that is what worship does in helping Christians change. Not going through the motions, but as we talked this morning, entering into worship in spirit and truth because that's the kind of worshipers God seeks. Are we the kinds of worshipers that are seeking God? Now, we want to start with something very basic and that is what in the world is worship? For it to have such a dramatic impact on our life. A, a simple definition is this. Worship means engaging the heart, the soul, the mind, all of our strength in ascribing ultimate value to something or to someone. When we worship, the, the old Anglo-Saxon word is worth-ship. And what you're doing is you're attributing worth, you're attributing ultimate value to someone or to something. And that's what David does in Psalm 29. In the first two verses, he says, Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. That means all of you angels, every created being that is not God in the heavenlies ascribe, that is, give ultimate worth, glory and strength to God. And then verse 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. That's what David is doing in Psalm 29, is he is calling for everything that recognizes God as holy and full of splendor and mighty and holy to give that ultimate value to Him as the supreme character and being in all of the universe. Now you go to Exodus chapter 20 and you go to that first commandment. And one of the things that really strikes you about that first commandment is that the command is not to worship. The Bible never commands us to, 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 uh, to decide to worship. The Bible sort of assumes that worship is something that we are going to do. The Bible recognizes that our hearts are sort of naturally, in the way that they've been put together by God, going to worship. What the Bible commands and what God has commanded through His inspired Word is that we worship Him. That we, as natural worshipers in our human capacity for this, you know, that, that's different from anything else, from anything else that's created, in our natural capacity to be able to worship, God is saying, worship Him. If there's going to be wholesomeness in your life, that it has to be Him. There should be no other gods. There can be no other gods before Him. It's because we are given this natural capacity to recognize God and to worship something that the Bible says it's got to be God. It's got to be God. It's got to be God. Because everyone is going to build their life on something. They're going to give their heart to something. They're going to set their hope on something in order to say, when I have this or when I've achieved this, then I'm going to have worth and I'm going to have value. And that's why career so many times is, is misplaced. And it becomes an object of worship. It's the place that's going to be formative. It's going to change our lives and give us shape. It's that career. But in the end, it destroys us or it disappoints us. Or it's, it's, it's somebody that we love. Or it's professional acclaim. It, it's one of these things. The Bible says that we are built to give ultimate value to something. The Bible says you're going to worship. Make sure that it's God. Which brings us now to Psalm 95. In Psalm 95, look at verses 1 and 2. You have joy, the emotions of joy. Come and let us sing for joy. Let us come before Him in thanksgiving. 
Then you drop down to verses 6 and 7, and what you have is submission of the will. You have the emotions of joy. You have the submission of the will. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. He is our God. And then you drop down to, to verses 7 and 8, and what you have is the mind. The, uh, the psalmist says, Hear His voice and do not harden your heart. Which is about, and you know, if you go to Hebrews and other places in the Old Testament, you find this verse. It's a story about people being in the presence of God and, and not listening and not perceiving and not understanding in such a way that it created faith and it created closeness to God. But because of their lack of all of these things with God, it created a terrible relationship and it created all kinds of havoc in their lives. And so basically what the, the psalmist is saying is don't be like that. Use your mind to understand God. Hear His voice. Don't harden your heart. It's about understanding God with your mind. Now, all of these emotions, the emotions of joy and worshiping God with thanksgiving, the submission of the will, bowing down before Him, and our thought life are brought into the worship of God. That is, the ascribing of ultimate value to God. Now, how does this happen? How is it that the psalmist is saying, bring all of your emotional life? How is it that the psalmist is saying, bring your, your volitional part, the submission of your will to God, and bow down before Him? How is it that he's able to say, take your mind into the presence of God and worship Him? And to react to the presence and the reality of God, the truth of God, in ways that are different from your forefathers. It's this little preposition that we find a couple of times in this psalm. It is the preposition for. F-O-R. The little preposition for. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. Why do you come with joy before the Lord? Verse 3. For the Lord is the great God. The great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it. And His hands formed the dry land. Then you drop down to verse 7. For He is our God. We are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. What David is doing is he's thinking about the reality of God as, as the Creator. And, he, and he's weighing and treasuring the excellencies of God as the lover of his soul. He is the, the pastor of my life, the shepherd of my life. I am a sheep. I'm helpless. He's the one that cares for me. I am a part of his flock. And David is thinking and he's weighing and he's treasuring the excellencies of God and he thinks about it and thinks about it and thinks about it until it drills deeply down into the hard granite rock of his heart. And there, all of that information is detonated and he melts before God. The God that all of these truths point to. The great God who makes the sea and forms dry land. Who has called me to be in relationship with Him. You know, think about it uh, this way. There's a woman who, uh, whose family has passed away. The last member of family that has passed away is her mother. And she receives in the reading of the will all of her mother's jewelry, which involves this necklace that she's seen all of her life, has rarely ever seen her mother wear it except on special occasions. But she doesn't know that much about it. it she's seen it uh, all her life, but she doesn't know that much about it. She's not really spent a whole lot of emotional energy getting attached to it. She hasn't really looked at it very carefully or very closely, but now it's hers. And not knowing really anything about it, what she does is she takes it to a jeweler, a recognized 
authority on jewels and gems and, and precious metals in her community. And she presents it to that jeweler. And he takes out that little loop, that little eyeglass thing, and he looks at it very carefully. And she begins to see that there's an exchange, a change expression on his face. And he asks, can I take this in the back for a few minutes to, to run some tests on it? She says, absolutely. And he takes it into the back and he looks at it with a bigger loop and a bigger magnifying glass and he runs tests on it and he weighs it and he gauges it and he looks at it and he gets the calculator out. And the next thing you know, she can hear him breathing very, very heavy in the back as he brings this jewel, this necklace out to her that she doesn't really know all that much about. And he says, you know what, I've been thinking about this piece and I've gauged it and I've weighed it and I've measured it and I've looked at it deeply and I've thought about it and I've run numbers, put the pencil to the paper, I've looked at this thing and looked at this thing and I want you to know something. I can hardly breathe right now because of what I'm holding in my hand. This necklace is worth more than all the jewels and all the precious metals and all the jewelry that I have in this store right now or I've ever sold in my entire life. It's worth more than all of that put together. How did that happen? How did all of his emotions and, and coming with joy and, 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 and the, uh, the, the understanding of the greatness of the preciousness of that treasure, how did that come about and change him? Because he weighed it. And he, drill, he allowed the information of the worth of what he was holding in his hand to drill deeply down, the worth of that necklace, to drill deeply down into his heart and when all of the information was gathered, it detonated inside of him. When he realized the worth of the necklace. I wonder sometimes if we treat God like that necklace in the drawer. I mean, we know we have it. We can identify it. We have access to it anytime we want. But we don't know what it's worth. Just We know that God is a creator. We know that God is a shepherd. We know the words. We know all the titles for God. We know some of the words of the Bible by heart. We go through the motions of worship every Sunday, but it's never drilled down deeply into our heart. What we do as worship. We don't know what we have. And the question is, everybody is going to be shaped by something. Is it God? Is it God that you are attributing ultimate worth to? The reason that we do not feel bad when we lie and we cheat and we manipulate and we hurt others and we do things that we know are against, at the very minimum, our own conscience. The reason we do not feel bad is because we're worshiping the wrong thing. We have not been drawn in through weighing and thinking and, and measuring and meditating and contemplating and reflecting on the excellence of God. But we're worshiping the wrong thing. Or we're not worshiping in truth or in, in spirit. We're just going through the motions. And we're looking at something in the heart of our hearts as a precious treasure. But it's not God. And His holiness and His love and His compassion and His mercy. And that's why year after year after year, even of going to church, we're not changed. Uh, one, one last thought. Why worship together? Why worship together? Do you notice in the reading of this psalm that, that Kevin did for us, the, the plural language, it's let us, let us. It's the community. It's let us worship God. Come into His presence with joy. 
You, you know, I read a lot of C.S. Lewis, and, and C.S. Lewis has written something I think very insightful about this, this, this particular aspect of the psalm. He says that people, individuals like you and me, are best known and more completely known in community than anywhere else. Let me give you an example of that. You know, many of you know my wife, Ellen, and you love her. You think that she's, she's a great woman. She's a good friend to you. And, and you've known her for, for 12 years now, many of you. And, and some of you spend uh, a lot of time with her. But if you've never seen Ellen laugh, where her eyes crinkle up and, and she, just got, she just laughs from the very core of her being in only the way that myself or her daughter or her son, Jessica or Jordan, can do, then you don't know about that part of her that we only bring out. You've never seen it. Thus, your knowledge of her is incomplete. The same thing is true. You know, there is nobody in this room, there is nobody on the planet that knows my wife as well as I do. There is, there is nobody that knows her as intimately and as profoundly as I do after, after 30, uh, two year, uh, 31 years of marriage. Got that straight. 31. I think I know her. I've been around her, dated her for three years, been married to her, and then all of a sudden, thinking that I know her, we're driving home one day, and I hear her talking to infant Jessica. And I hear in her voice what I think an angel sounds like as she talks to that little baby girl that I never would have heard had Jessica not pulled it out of her. That's why Lewis says that people are known more completely in community than they are one-on-one. If, infant, if, if, if finite human beings can't be fully known one-on-one because, uh, you know, as, as much time as Ed Biggers and I spend together, there, I w- there are things about Ed I would never know unless I knew Gray, his wife, as well, and see those kinds of things that Gray, only Gray, or his mother, Scotty, can pull out of Ed. And if a finite human being cannot be fully known one-on-one, then how much more an infinite God? That's why we are called, one of the reasons why we're called to, to corporate worship. I mean, we worship. I worship every day. I praise God every day. But it's not the same thing as coming into the presence on the first day of the week as the habit and, 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 and teaching of the church to come together on the first day of the week to worship God in the presence of saints. There is a tremendous wisdom in the church uh, worshiping together, corporately and in community. And there's a, a blessing, a tremendous blessing in the church worshiping together corporately and in community. Because when we think about, you know, all we need to do is worship God on our own and, and all I need is God and myself and nobody else, then what we're really saying is that, and you know, we don't need any other people around, what we're really saying is that we're, what we can do is figure out what the big thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle looks like with only one small piece, which is what God has done in my own life. But when I come together and you come together and we all come together on the first day of the week in the presence of God as Jesus as the cornerstone, and we are all those bricks that God is building this dwelling place for His Spirit, which He is pleased to dwell with His Spirit, and we come together. And I see all of the ways that God has blessed you in ways that He's never blessed me. 
and the things that He's doing in your life to change you and to grow you up into the likeness of Jesus. And I see all of those ways that God has intersected your life and has, has, has changed you and transformed you and discipled you and, and made you such a lovely person in ways that maybe I've not been able to go through or had to go through. And you see the same kinds of things in me. Then what we have, all of those pieces of the puzzle kind of come together and we have this more complete picture of the face of God. That's why the psalmists, that's why the New Testament writers, that's why the writers of the Bible say, we come together. It's let us worship. It is to come into God's presence and to see the God in in whose image we are made working out that image in such different ways in everybody else's life. And when we see that change and when we, we, we see those blessings and we see that poise that He develops in people's lives and we see the, the strength that He gives them in those moments of adversity and the light that is shining in their hearts when they go into that valley of the shadow of death and that, that time of darkness when it seems like they're going into a cave just like David and just like Elijah. And, and we see those times in which they, they went the nth degree when it came to trusting God and God came through it, it bolsters our faith and it helps form our faith when we face the same kinds of things. And over and over again, you know, the Bible talks about weeping with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. Where does that happen? Well, it happens every day in our houses, but it happens when we come together. It comes together and, and we hear about people that are, we, we weep with those families that go through tragedy and we rejoice with those new births. And we know that God is alive because He's alive in different people's lives in such ways that it's vibrant in ways that we and dynamic in ways that we've not seen in other people at least that week. And we're reminded that we worship in the body as the body of Christ a living and risen Savior. And that God has called us into His presence. And the more we think about the greatness of how He has worked in our lives and the greatness of His being, and we just spend some time like, like Steve did this morning telling us about the, the, the resurrection of Jesus and how before that there was this cross and even before that there was this supper that we were participating in at that moment where that, that juice and that bread were reminders of this tremendous love. That's not just an emotion that comes to us, but it is a power, a, a, a dynamite that comes into our lives. That love, when we accept it and it comes into our lives, it changes us in the present. And it changes us for all of eternity as we experience the reality of the cross that came after that meal and the resurrection that came after that cross. All of eternity is different. That's why we worship And that's why we worship together. It's part of our discipleship. When we come together and we see all of those different things that are manifested and demonstrated in our lives as believers, and we allow that information to go deep, 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 deep into our hearts, and we weigh and treasure the excellencies of God, and we meditate on it, and we weigh it, and we memorize that Scripture, and it detonates, we just melt. We just melt. And when it's detonated, we're moved. Martin Buber was this, this, uh, this great 
mind and uh, a philosopher, a, a Hasidic Jew and, and, and philosopher from a, a century ago. And, and he wrote a, a, a very famous book. And inside of that book, he tells a parable about uh, these, these two travelers that were going through a dark wood late at night. And it's a dangerous, dangerous wood. And they're very, very frightened. And they're going down this path when the lightning strikes. And the wise man looks at the path that is illuminated by the lightning and he's able to move from, from, from danger to safety. But the, the foolish man looks just at the lightning and never sees the path. When I think about all of the things that God does in our church family, the, the words of the old hymn, you know, sometimes, they, sometimes we can allow these words to become cliche. I pray that this hymn never becomes cliche for us. Amazing grace. Remember the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that what? Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was, but now I see. When we see, we need to move. There's some way that we can minister to you tonight. Jeff's going to lead us in a song. Our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. We want you to come down this aisle and talk to them tonight and to be ministered to by God's people and by God's leaders as we stand and sing together.